Hi, everyone. Eric here. Issues like Chinese debt relief that we're going to talk about in today's show are exactly the kinds of topics we explore every day in our China Africa email newsletter. And what we're trying to do is challenge the embedded narratives so you get a different perspective on these complex issues. This is a very unique newsletter. There really is nothing else like it out there, which is why diplomats, journalists, scholars, activists all subscribe to it. And I'd really like you to check it out as well. You can find out more information at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. It's half off for students and faculty. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndica Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it was about two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, that the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, uh, for the first time put the debt issue on the agenda in the lead up to the G20 Extraordinary Virtual Leadership Summit. Say that three times backwards. And, uh, and they wanted to put the fact that he's calling for massive debt cancellation, debt relief in response to the COVID-19 crisis that is now uh, wreaking havoc both in terms of a healthcare crisis, but increasingly and more pressing in Africa as an economic crisis. Now, since the that first tweet and the first announcement by Prime Minister Abayi, uh, there really hasn't been much of a response. Uh, your president, uh, Ramaphosa, he echoed the, the sentiments of Prime Minister Abayi at the G20 summit. We then start to hear something from rumblings from President Kenyatta as well. But really, no one responded except for a joint statement by the World Bank and the IMF. But what was interesting in all of this, Kobus, is that nobody, none of these African leaders, named China by name. They just said we need international debt relief, international debt cancellation. And really, at that point, no of the, none of the major actors responded. However... This week, that all changed. Uh, Ghana's finance minister, Ken Oforo-Ata, he was at an event uh, on Monday at the Center for Global Development doing a virtual summit or virtual meeting at a conference. Now everybody is separated and distance, uh, socially distanced. And he was the first one to actually put it on the agenda. Let's take a listen to what the Ghanaian finance minister had to say. Um, I think um, the issue of the SDRs is important. Um, because we need to find a way um, to make sure that we don't default on our commercial debt. Uh, that should not happen. Um, so we should find a way to increase SDRs or for the Europeans um, to offer their SDRs as a way out. Uh, my feeling is that China has to come on stronger. Uh, I think our Africa debt to China is about 145 billion or so, about 8 billion of interest required this year. Um, 8 billion payments required this year, you know, about 3 billion being interest. Um, so that needs to be to be looked at. So he was talking about SDRs, which are the special drawing rights, which are reserves funds 
uh, at the International Monetary Fund, and he wants to bolster his uh, his reserves in order to pay back the eurobond holders and the private creditors. But by naming China, he sparked a response. And then the following day on Tuesday, less than 24 hours after Finance Minister Oforo Atta made those comments with the Center for Global Development, Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian in his regular press briefing was asked by a Reuters correspondent, and let me quote this because it's very short, the Ghana finance minister said that he feels China has to come on stronger on debt relief. Does China have any specific plans to offer debt relief to African countries? The foreign ministry spokesman again, Zhao Lijian, he said, quote, I believe China will resolve these countries' difficulties via consultation through diplomatic channels. Okay, that sounds like a rather mundane response, but number one, the fact that he took the question and answered it is important. And also the fact that he's saying he's going through diplomatic channels to resolve this. We're going to bring that up later in our conversation. Two other very important points here to bring up. Uh, Nigeria's finance minister, Zanab uh, Ahmed, told Bloomberg that uh, Nigeria does not plan to suspend payments to eurobond holders, but will instead look to renegotiate its Chinese loans. In Nigeria, China is the second largest single creditor with about $3.2 billion of outstanding loans. Uh, Eurobonds, by the way, account for just under $11 billion, or about 40% of Nigeria's external debt. It's a similar situation in Kenya, where they're going to try and pay back the Eurobond holders and renegotiate with China. So, Kobus, a lot of movement this week on the China debt relief issue. Talk to us a little bit about how you're interpreting some of these events that have been happening. Well, it's it's really interesting to see that this is now actually officially on the agenda, um, because you know there there was a moment where Africa was calling for debt relief, and then there was just silence, just crickets. Um, you know, I, I also think it's interesting that uh, that the the uh, that spokesperson Zhao uh, said that you know they they he seems to imply that there are kind of diplomatic wheels already turning, um, and we'll now see what that would actually mean. Um, and it would also be very interesting to see whether whether the call will go out beyond China. You know, because obviously China has this this very close relationship with Africa, and they can be as a bilateral lender, they can be. They can Kind of called on specifically, um, you know, it's a bit of a different situation with eurobonds, um, and it'll be interesting to see which and whether um, Western lenders come to the table. Let's get some perspective on this from two experts who follow the China debt question, not just in Africa but globally. Uh, Agatha Kratz is an associate director at the Rhodium Group, where she heads up the group's European activities. For those of you not familiar with the Rhodium Group, they're a private research research group based out of New York. Uh, a very good, uh, let's see, afternoon from Paris. Very wonderful to finally have you on the show, Agatha. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. And we're also joined by Agatha's colleague, Matthew Minji, who's a research analyst at Rhodium, based in the main office overlooking Central Park in New York, but probably today joining us from home, as you should be. Uh, a very good morning to you, Matthew. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having us. Well, as I mentioned, you guys follow debt very carefully. Back in April of last year, you wrote a report, uh, new data on the debt trap question that got a lot of attention in part because it showed that China is actually, uh, contrary to what the U.S. allegation is in terms of entrapping countries with debt, uh, your report indicated that they're rescheduling and canceling. And in so many ways, Agatha, you wrote this report. We are now back to this moment now to try to understand how China is going to respond to these calls for debt relief and debt cancellation. 
based on your findings and your research that you did in the 2019 report, uh, new data on the debt trap question, how do you think they are processing all of these events right now? And what's going on in Beijing in terms of their thinking about how to deal with the issue of African debt? I'm not sure how they're processing it in Beijing and what the thinking is at the moment. I think we've got uh, from our past research and recent research um, with Matt uh, uh, identified and uh, clarified the fact that there's one certainty out there, which is that debt renegotiation cases are going to increase. Um, they're going to increase for three main reasons. Um, the first one is because uh, the situation, uh, debt situation in Africa uh, was already pretty um, unstable unsustainable in 2018, 2019, before the COVID crisis, uh, with as many as 13 countries in the end of 2018 that had, you know, debt to GDP over 60%. Uh, COVID hitting those economies now um, with uh, decreased tourism, decreased commodity sales, decreased um, economic um, activity just because of the lockdown. Um, and to add to that, um, some of what we saw in our research is that if you think that the peak of the Belt and Road Initiative lending was around 2016-17, which, you know, works on African uh, debt and Latin American debt are showing, um, you can expect, given that grace periods are usually five to six years, um, a huge wave of renegotiation coming uh, Beijing's way in any case. So if you add to that the COVID uh, crisis and the macroeconomic crisis that might ensue, um, I think Beijing is preparing for a tsunami of uh, debt renegotiation. Now, in the past and in the research we've done to date, um, we've seen, you know, uh, cases of some somewhat isolated case um uh, debt renegotiation. And so in most of the cases, and this is what we showed in our um, note uh, last April, in most of those cases, the outcome was a deferral, uh, either of interest payment or full debt repayment, uh, interest and capital. Uh, sometimes um, certain level of refinancing, sometimes some of the terms being renegotiated, for example, the interest rate level, um, sometimes a mix of those uh, with deferral and refinancing, deferral and terms renegotiation, um, and so, you know, the debt trap narrative not really fitting with this. Um, but in this situation, you know, based on past research, I would say it's really likely that deferral once again is the solution um, and deferral rather than forgiveness, actually, uh, because other than small zero interest loans, uh, China doesn't forgive um, much of the loans that it extends, especially when they're over 1 billion or 2 billion, uh, which is most of the database we've put together. Um, so deferral is probably the most uh, likely outcome now. Uh, what is unprecedented here um, is the fact that all of a sudden, almost, you know, maybe 20, 25, 30 percent of uh, China's debt uh, to those countries um, and to those recipients is going to come uh, under renegotiation. And we haven't seen that before. We haven't seen a situation where all of those processes are happening at the same time. So uh, the question here will be, you know, is China open to doing it multilaterally and collectively? Uh, or will it want to do it diplomatically, bilaterally, one by one? And that's the key issue, I think, here. Matt, just a very basic scene-setting question. Um, where is China's banking system now in the wake of the of the COVID crisis? Like, how healthy is it? Um, and how much bandwidth and, and leeway do they have to actually renegotiate these loans in the way that Agatha, Agatha mentioned? 
So we've been taking a look at this uh, at the Rhodium Group, uh, particularly our China Markets team, and well, it's fair to say that we're still trying to understand the the full picture, um, particularly in terms of China's outbound BRI lending. Uh, China's outbound BRI lending makes up a very very small portion of all of the uh, loans that China makes. Um, if we think about some of the BRI lending levels at sort of the peak of the BRI in you know 2015 2016, um, you're talking on the order of you know tens of billions of dollars a year. Um, compared to the magnitude of all of China's loans, say, for example, in 2019, which is on the scale of trillions, China's outbound sort of BRI financing uh, is only drops in the bucket there. Um, in general, CDB and Exim, you know, the two key policy bank actors, uh, have been undertaking a, a series of reforms over the last few years. Um, and certainly their, uh, you know, fundamental performance in terms of their capital adequacy, um, in terms of their balance sheets, uh, there does not appear to be any sort of outside restriction or restrictions on them in terms of the Chinese financial system, um, in terms of their ability to continue that level of BRI lending over the next few years if they want to. Um, certainly one thing that Rhodium is looking at and trying to understand is uh, how exactly CDB especially will be called on or not called upon um, to act to try and pick up the Chinese domestic economy in the wake of the COVID crisis. And certainly CDB will play a role. But if you're talking about Belt and Road financing and Belt and Road financing to Africa in particular, um, what Agatha and I have been looking at, it seems to be that there's not any uh, major restriction if there's a decision on behalf of the banks and a decision on behalf of China to keep up the levels of BRI financing or certainly to keep them up at a slightly depressed level in the wake of the COVID crisis. Agatha, I want to go back to a point that you made that China does not forgive debts. And that's based on research. Uh, Deborah Braudigam of the Johns Hopkins University China-Africa Research Initiative, she has said similar things in the past, that what we've seen in terms of debt cancellation, debt rescheduling has been relatively small rel compared to the overall amounts that are there. So if we're going into this COVID-19 debt rescheduling or debt negotiation process, with that assumption that the, they're not simply going to do like a like a debt forgiveness program for the highly indebted poor country program that happened in Africa previously. Uh, what's going to happen here? What's, talk to us a little bit about what some of the scenarios could be. So one of the scenarios I put forward today in our newsletter, uh, which you receive and you, you had a chance to see, but I'll share with everybody, was the fact that this is not simply an economic decision for Beijing. At the end of the day, China has somewhere around $140 billion of loans, of outstanding loans in Africa. Now, for Africa, that sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. But for a $12 to $13 trillion economy in China, it's manageable. It's not that much. So the idea is that they don't want to simply wipe away the debt because they want to retain the leverage. And they want political leverage over these governments. And these governments, what they want to do is they want to keep them in their, in, in their side of the ledger. That is, they don't want these governments to start flirting with the United States. They don't want them to start inviting the Dalai Lama. They don't want them to sign letters supporting, you know, Xinjiang human rights. And so by having this debt that is deferred, not canceled, they could snap back if they need to to be able to pull a country in line if they're not aligning with themselves with Beijing's core national security interests that it defines, which are these red line issues. What's your take on that theory? I, I would very broadly agree, actually. Um, I want to take maybe two minutes to go back to uh, my statement on uh, debt forgiveness. Uh, I'll 
didn't mean to say that China doesn't forgive uh, debt. Actually, we found uh, with our research with Matt, uh, we found about 90, a little bit more than 90 cases of China forgiving debt. The issue is that each of those, you know, range from 3 million to 200 million uh, being forgiven when uh, the loans that Matt and I have been looking at in terms of renegotiation, not forgiveness, um, is closer to 3 billion on average. Uh, so imagine the, the difference in scale. And so if you add up even uh, those 95 loans um, altogether, you don't get um, that much higher than maybe 9 billion um, altogether if you add Cuba, which was a, which was a huge, huge chunk between 4 and uh, 6 billion. Um, compared to that, uh, loans that China is renegotiating, so not forgiving, um, which um, we're, we're looking at more uh, intensely uh, with Matt, is about 63 billion. So that's a very big difference. Um, and, you know, the loans that China is forgiving are small, zero interest loans, uh, very different. So just wanted to make that point. China does forgive, um, but it forgives very small amounts. It forgives um, to countries that um, are in needs, usually low-income countries. And uh, usually when it forgives, it gives uh, or extends further lending at that occasion. We saw that with Botswana in 2018, where they, um, the Chinese government wrote off 7 million in debt, but gave 900 million uh, of new lending. Uh, so, you know, the dynamic is really complicated. And so if we're thinking about debt forgiveness, uh, we're thinking about a very, very big amount. We're speaking about big projects and we're speaking about uh, single loans in the billions. And you're saying, you know, 140 billion. Uh, and I agree with you um, that the solution won't be um, won't be all uh, forgiveness and uh, writing off. It can't be. It's too big an amount. And also it would uh, invite moral hazard. Probably Beijing doesn't want to do that. Uh, it is a lot. It's a lot on the table for uh, China to take, even if CDB and Exim are healthy and in good shape, or even if they have political backing. Um, leading or uh, accepting that much of a, of a write-off uh, would be a problem. Now, of course, not all governments, African governments, are, are going to run into as much difficulties. Not all of those 140 billion are due the same year. Uh, most of the loans, you know, have repayment period between 10 and 15 years. So, you know, only part or a portion of that is coming due this year. Um, so I completely agree with you. The best way forward and probably the most likely way forward is for uh, Beijing to say, well, we're going to delay uh, and we're going to delay probably most of what's due this year, maybe a bit of what's due next year, uh, will delay it by, you know, one, two, three years. Um, in the past, we've seen with Matt that um, in cases of uh, deferral, uh, depending um, depending on the financial stability and health of the recipient, uh, deferrals can go from three years to sometimes as much as 10 years. Um, so I think, you know, there will be a mix of this, um, there will be a mix of uh, you know, forgiving and then uh, maybe even refinancing, who knows, in, in some places where it's really needed. Uh, but I do agree with you that uh, that might come, and it's always very hard to trace and it's always very hard to show, but that might come with uh, increased influence and leverage. You're speaking about uh, the Dalai Lama, you're speaking about Taiwan, you're speaking about Xinjiang. I'm also thinking about preferential access for Chinese companies, of course. Think 5G, think telecommunications of all other sorts, uh, think you know, road, rails, uh, ports, um, for sure, uh, even military exercises, military sales, preferring, you know, Chinese uh, arms to Russian arms if necessary. Um, all of it, I think, uh, can be in the bucket. Now, I would add, and this is something we've seen in the past, that usually um, borrowers um, are much more inclined to please um, their lenders at the moment where the lend is extended rather than the moment where it is renegotiated. You usually don't like uh, your 
bank coming to you and asking you for your money back. So there will probably be a little bit of a mix here. There might be a little bit of a balancing act as well, um, you know, between the IMF and um, between other lenders um, to try and see if there's uh, some kind of equilibrium that can be found and maybe not that much Chinese influence in all of Africa's countries. But I would agree with you uh, really much overall. Matt, what's your take on that? I would agree with Agatha. Certainly what we've seen empirically in terms of our data set, if you're not looking at zero interest loans that are written off in small amounts, the uh, sort of major high profile write-offs that are always proclaimed at FOCAC conferences, um, deferral is the most common option. And that includes for some of the largest projects that we've seen in our database of renegotiations. Um, One of the largest that we've seen uh, that involved a deferral uh, was the Addis Ababa Djibouti Railway, uh, which the repayment period was pushed off by between 10 and 15 years, which was huge. Um, And that was after uh, Sinusure had been involved and made some statements that were surprising at the time, but not necessarily in hindsight um, on the debt burden that was presenting. And certainly we've seen in some cases that those deferrals can be renewed. Um, We've seen some defensive lending in Venezuela, for example, um, where China's put a lot of money into the oil sector. um, And there's been a recurring sort of two-year either grace period or uh, interest deferrals. And so China, I think, generally prefers to defer. Um, Certainly, I think the leverage issue and the political issue um, is important because all of China's Uh, bilateral lending takes place in a political context, and we can't forget it. I would also stress, though, that certainly with CDB and Exim, and definitely for the big four commercial banks as well, ICBC among them being especially active in Africa, um, these are banks that don't like to take haircuts. They are regulated as banks. Um, And certainly over the last few years, from what we've been hearing within the policy banks themselves, um, there's been increasing moves to standardize practices involved in debt recovery, evaluating country risk, particularly with some new policies near the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018. And so I think not only because of the political context, not only because of moral hazard, I think because of conditions within the banks themselves at CDB and Exim, um, they are going to be pushing hard for uh, deferral just as they've done in the past. One other thing that it could be important to note as well is that certainly we've been seeing, even with those zero interest loans that are being forgiven, that are being written off, the only loans that are eligible to be written off, we've been seeing a little bit more uh, circumspect practices out of China recipient countries over the last few years. As we've been trying to dig into more recent cases when we hear about a, a loan being written off, um, whereas it used to be the case that you'd hear about it on MoFCOM websites and it might be proclaimed more widely within Chinese media, sometimes you'll go you know, weeks or uh, several months without necessarily hearing a whole lot about the write-off of a specific country's debt. Um, we saw this in Cameroon uh, when China wrote off around $80 million or $78 million of uh, uh, zero-interest loans. Uh, and it took a couple weeks before uh, it was actually acknowledged by the Chinese side rather than by domestic media or by Chinese media reports that had to be corrected. Um, the issue of China's overseas, overseas aid and China's aid lending in particular, which Exim is responsible for, still remains politically sensitive uh, domestically in China. And so I think that's just uh, another one of those complex factors that I can mention that we have to take into account, not just the political context, not just the internal wants of CDB and Exim, but also the, the broad domestic context, especially uh, when you talk about a global crisis like COVID, where China is hurting uh, at the same time that 
the rest of the world is, um, how you weigh all those dynamics. And certainly, as Agatha mentioned, how those interplay with the IMF and other international actors is going to be something that's really interesting going forward. Agatha, um, if, if your scenario of, of deferment comes, comes true, um, will that have a knock-on effect on some of, other, of Africa's other creditors? Is there a way where that can be used as kind of a negotiating leverage with, with particularly with, with Eurobond investors, or are those, you know, kind of would the one not have any, any effect on the other? Well, certainly I think that um, no one at this point in time, and given the seriousness of the uh, situation and the crisis that might be looming, uh, no one will want to unilaterally uh, forgive African debt at this point in time. We've heard in the past, and it wasn't in the COVID context, but we've heard in the past the US through um, Pompeo, Malpass, or Nagy, uh, representing the US at different institutions, saying um, we won't allow... um, you know, U.S. money, international money, multilateral money being used to repay Chinese debt um, because uh, there's, you know, once again, a moral hazard here, but also because, well, if indebtedness levels are so high, um, if one of the uh, participants and lenders uh, forgives without the other one forgiving, um, then uh, it's uh, punishment or it's uh, too much of a burden of any one lender. And so I think, you know, creditors have to be um, working together in that situation and there will be a huge prisoner's dilemma here um, of uh, trying to get everyone to agree, trying to get everyone um, to uh, reschedule, uh, maybe forgive part of the debt, um, be it IMF, World Bank, and all kinds of international creditors, national creditors, um, China, of course, and then hard um, uh, one hard participant, and you mentioned it, um, both of you actually mentioned them, um, are investors uh, through Eurobonds, um, because that's also a very hard discussion to be had and a much uh, more complicated, not at the international level. Um, There's no single investor here. uh, So the conversation is necessarily going to have to include them uh, as well. Um, But, you know, I I don't see China forgiving without anyone else doing so as well. Matthew, I'm going to put an issue out on the table that that a lot of people on Twitter are talking about. And it, it is something that you guys have written about and you follow, the fact that, okay, so Africans cannot pay back their debt right now. And not just Africans, it's probably Venezuelans and others can't pay it. The Chinese don't forgive debt or they don't forgive enough of it. Are they going to start taking collateral? Are they going to, to seize assets, which was what a lot of people fear? And this is the debt trap narrative right here. And this is the opportunity if they are going to do it. Is there any indication in your research that you see that the Chinese are eyeing assets in lieu of debt payment? So certainly so far, at least if we look at the cases uh, that we've collected, we have not found any clear examples of uh, sort of a resource call-in um, or a uh, debt for equity swap or uh, you know, pure debt trap diplomacy, as the phrase goes. Um, even the case of Sri Lanka that's been highlighted, has been claimed as kind of the, the cornerstone of debt trap diplomacy, it really doesn't fit um, that sort of uh, structure of being a, a resource call-in or uh, an asset call-in uh, for, for many reasons that we could get into separately. Certainly, I think um, we've seen a little bit more of a hesitation um, in terms of new lending, and certainly on the Chinese side, to uh, talk about what exactly terms are for potential uh, asset swaps or in terms of calling in uh, sort of resource collateral. Um, I think as a political question, 
um, it would be very difficult for me to see China accepting the political hit, uh, regardless of the underlying uh, issues and in, in particular loans, um, to call in any sort of uh, collateral clauses that we've seen, um, even though they may exist on paper for certain loans that uh, were made prior uh, to you know, 2017, 2018, 2019. Um, I think politically, it'd be very difficult for me to see those um, being called in. Um, certainly, what we've seen so far in renegotiations is that China is actually more willing than I think is commonly acknowledged to uh, both defer, and deferral is the most common option, but to try and find a, a different way um, without necessarily having to call in resources. That's not to say that resource-backed loans uh, and issues um, involving those resource-backed loans aren't common. Or certainly haven't been common in Chinese lending so far, um, but the idea of you know wiping the table and and calling in backing is is more complex. I'll also note that we've tracked among several of our renegotiation cases um, instances where the underlying purchase contracts are occasionally renegotiated as well. We've seen this, for example, uh, in Ecuador, notably, um, with regard to a, a few oil-backed loans there. Um, so it's not to say that uh, those you know, particular clauses aren't potentially in play. Um, but practically speaking, it'd be very difficult for us to envision them being called in on a wide scale. Um, one example, and one of the only counterexamples that we can find is that of Ukraine, which is a lot less publicized case, in which uh, there had been a grain-backed, uh, a grain-backed loan that had been made to Ukraine, uh, under which Ukraine was meant to disperse uh, or sell uh, grain shipments directly to China. Even after Ukraine had failed to deliver several of those shipments, um, rather than potentially call in uh, directly any of the sort of backing associated with that contract, it has ended up in arbitration where uh, it sort of disappears from all the rest of our radar screens. Um, certainly, uh, there are hard choices to be made, both for recipient countries and for China in terms of approaching potential restructuring. Um, but resources on the whole, I don't think, uh, are going to be the focus of uh, the sort of debt trap narratives that we've heard so far, uh, or certainly heard around Sri Lanka or over the past few years. Agatha, where do you see this, all of this, you know, kind of the, these changes and these kind of renegotiations leaving the Belt and Road Initiative in the future? Do you, do you foresee some you know, a lessening of financial and political will, you know, behind the, the BRI and a kind of a slow kind of fading away of it? Or, or do you think the, that it will actually be a kind of a doubling down on it, um, you know, after the crisis is done? Well, it's, it's really hard to say. I think there's two main answers to this question. Uh, the, the first one is that BRI actually started decelerating um, and, and BRI flow started um, decreasing uh, before the COVID crisis. If you look at Chinese lending to Latin America, Chinese lending to Africa, Chinese lending to the Pacific Islands, um, the peak was really 2016, 2017, and um, 2018, 2019, pretty much across the globe, had seen BRI lending uh, falling um, across, once again, across the board. Um, and so that's already a sign that pre-COVID, pre-crisis, um, you had a rethinking, recalibration on the part of policy banks, first and foremost, as the main lenders, Exim and CDB, but also on the part of the um, government in Beijing, um, to rethink lending across the Belt and Road, um, and probably, certainly, you know, uh, towards less of it, maybe more sustainability, more quality. Uh, and so I think that's that's a broad 
based movement that is due to continue um, in terms of its principle. Um, I had seen before that and before the second Belt and Road Forum uh, in particular put words and, and uh, commitments on this idea of lending sustainability. Uh, I had seen many cases of CDB or Exim uh, declining uh, Belt and Road projects um, after 2015-2016 saying that um, they were unsustainable. Uh, uh, the Jakarta Bandung uh, rail project in Indonesia is an extremely interesting case there uh, because the reason why it's been delayed for five years now is because CDB won't disburse the money uh, unless a certain number of conditions that make the overall lending uh, sustainable and profitable for CDB are met. So it was already um, a trend that we were seeing in the past. And so, you know, you would expect that to continue into the future with fewer loans and maybe better loans. Um, a lot of the uh, people we're speaking to in Europe um, at public institutions are also telling us that they're receiving uh, visits uh, from Chinese lenders trying to understand how to make better loans. And, and that was a broader trend that we, you know, that we would think, especially if there's broad-based debt renegotiation and debt um, crisis, uh, should continue. The issue at the end of the day is always political, and that's why and what sets uh, Chinese lending apart from, uh, you know, international multilateral and or Western lending for that matter, um, really because uh, in, in renegotiation, um, the, the way that Beijing acts is usually pretty typical. Uh, when you look at terms of lending, they're pretty, you know, risk-driven, but at the end of the day, what really sets Beijing apart is the will to lend politically when needed. And I think, you know, the key uncertainty here is how much will Beijing, how much will the Chinese government post-COVID want to be the big um, developmental partner to all of Africa, to Belt and Road countries post-COVID, uh, especially if the EU doesn't step up, especially if the US doesn't step up. Um, and, you know, if, if that's an opportunity uh, Beijing wants to seize, uh, then I think it will make the money available. And so we're really at a crossroad here with huge uncertainty. I would add one thing here. Um, Eric, you were speaking about influence. You were speaking about the ability to politically or economically uh, shape recipient countries in a way that's favorable either to Chinese foreign policy or Chinese firms. Um, with COVID, uh, this will get to a certain extent cheaper um, because if countries run into huge macroeconomic difficulties, then even a few, you know, um, tens of millions in loans, aid, mask, PPE, will be huge help. Um, and so it might be that um, continued Chinese um, aid financing um, actually can uh, deliver as much, if not more, influence, even if there's less lending or less financing. Uh, so, but it's still a big question. I don't think that we have the answer yet. No, we don't. And uh, it's just as we're going through this conversation, a bunch of conflicting theories are bouncing around in my head. And Matthew, I'd like to get your take on on, on this. So, one scenario, as as both of you have, have pointed out, was that BRI lending has been going down. The appetite in China for high risk ventures, not just in Africa, but also in uh, South America and South Asia and other parts has has also waned a little bit. They're they're tending to consolidate more of their loans in in projects that are feasible. So I can see, for example, post COVID, it's going to be incredibly difficult for any African government to try and raise a huge amount of money from the Chinese. They'll think, well, listen, we wrote off a whole bunch of debt. Uh, or we've rescheduled it. We're never going to see that money again. We're not going to loan you another $6 billion to build a railroad. We're not going to underwrite a big deal for a piece of infrastructure. We're done with that because at the end of the day, 
our economy is on its knees and we have to divert those money, those monies domestically. And there might be a shift to be able to get the domestic economy back go, going up. Some days I've convinced myself that that's the way it's going to be. Other days, and I hear Agatha saying this, that, you know what, everything just got a whole lot cheaper. And this is going to be the moment for China to really come in and and amplify and magnify their influence in a matter of, you know, 5x, 10x, 15x for what it used to cost. So the idea is that they can come in with some masks or they can come in with a few small loans. And because it's going to be so dire, what's going to happen in Africa in particular? Uh, I, I mean, I am very, very bearish on the outlook in, in the next five to 10 years in Africa in poor countries in general. Uh, poor people, by the way, in general, even in the United States and Europe, I think they're going to get steamrolled as well. So China can come in and play the role of the savior as the one who's going to to lend where others won't. What's your thinking on these two scenarios? And it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or, it can be a both and. But tell me a little bit about what you're looking post-COVID, if we can even see that far. Certainly. I think anytime you're talking about Chinese debt, both and is always the safest answer. Um, but I, in this case, I think it is the, the correct answer. Um, to the first scenario, the issue of um, China already engaged in a, a pullback of its Belt and Road lending and trying to re-rationalize um, its lending criteria and cut back and ensure project quality, um, certainly that's happening. Um, on the other hand, if we look at where China has been lending as part of the BRI, where they are continuing to lend as part of the BRI, um, China has been historically comfortable lending to countries with a history of default of poor credit ratings um, and going to places um, that under normal circumstances would demand either extraordinarily high interest rates or, or wouldn't be able to get credit for those types of projects at all. Um, you see this some, in some places in Africa, in Latin America, you see it notably in Ecuador, where you talk about billions upon billions of projects after uh, defaults on sovereign loans in uh, you know, sort of the um, late knots. And so I think the idea that China is trying to um, pull back on its BRI lending and certainly try and get better with its project selection um, is true and will have an influence in terms of how it chooses to deploy those funds going forward. You may not see the same levels of financing as you saw at the peak that Agatha mentioned in 2016, 2017. Um, and a lot of that will come down to, I think, the internal discussions within CDB, within Exim, within the commercial banks, and also the interactions between uh, those institutions and Chinese government institutions as far as what the posture is going to be. Um, on the other hand, on scenario two that Agatha discussed and that, that you had mentioned as well that you're very bearish on, um, I think that can't be discounted as well. Certainly, um, you have seen um, over the last few weeks, you've seen a step up in terms of you know, Chinese in-kind donations, in terms of medical teams, more traditional aid. Um, and I would expect that you would see the same um, at a, at a lesser scale in terms of lending. Um, one other thing, and it's a dynamic that we'll note that we've seen in our, our previous data set that has held true in the past and that uh, I believe you know, personally would continue to hold true even in a post-COVID world is something that Agatha mentioned, which is every time that you have a write-off or uh, many times when you have a renegotiation, it's often accompanied by new lending, sometimes several orders of magnitude higher. Agatha mentioned one case, again, in Ecuador. There was another case when President Moreno went to Beijing, I believe, last year and came back with a pledged uh, you know, $900 million of farther Exim financing. Um, so and that happened in Ethiopia as well, where they wrote off a little bit of the debt and he borrowed more. Correct. Um, so we've we've seen this um, we've seen this dynamic 
in situations where China knows that there is a debt issue, where there's a debt issue that um, has need for restructuring, um, it has not stopped them uh, either for political reasons, either because of uh, you know underlying project quality, maybe the projects are just super attractive, um, or because of internal dynamics at CDB and Exim that they are willing to continue um, trying to keep their activities up there, in some cases expand them. Um, uh, COVID has changed everything, um, and in some ways it hasn't changed a lot. And so I think there'll be a balance between those two scenarios, scenario one and scenario two. Um, but personally, I'm inclined to think that from a uh, economic diplomacy perspective, the opportunity for China is just too great to to pull back completely. I got that, um, to, to swing it a little bit to the demand side from the supply side, um, how do you foresee the, this crisis changing um, African governments thinking about lending? Like, is it, you know, because I, I can see different scenarios, one where, you know, because of because of the economic impact, there would be a greater demand for lending among African, for, for new loans from, from African governments. But also, you know, that they themselves might become more, more worried about, you know, about future crises and, and, and also, you know, while dealing with the, the fallout of the current one. Like, what, what do you think their thinking is going to be in relation to taking on new debt, you know, as over the next few years? Well, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear your and Eric's take, of course, because you're the Africa specialist in the, in the room. So um, I'd, I'd love for you to also offer uh, an answer here. Um, I think it's a very complicated answer because at the end of the day it really depends on how much choice you have i think you know um in the past few years maybe past decade uh, we've seen a lot of african countries in particular but some asian countries as well renegotiating their loans with china trying to get out of some chinese projects trying to um do better um at renegotiating even just negotiating loans um, with uh, Chinese lenders uh, because they realized that the first time around they didn't go about it well. They realized that the first time around maybe the terms weren't in their favor. It's a matter of skills. It's a matter of um, understanding exactly uh, what the uh, balance of benefits is on each side. Um, and I think, you know, that We've we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of kind of second wave of Chinese lending coming in at much better um, conditions than first wave uh, because countries learned and they learn uh, from past interaction they learn from other um, countries also renegotiating or negotiating their debt with China. Uh, one of the cases I like the most is the case of Thailand, uh, which in 2015-16 um, heard or learned or read in the news whichever it is um, the Thai government uh, learned that the Indonesian government had gotten a 2% interest rate on their loan, uh, once again on the Jakarta-Bandung uh, project. Um, I'm a bit of a rail fanatic, so that's why I'm uh, speaking about it again and again. But, um, you know, learning that Indonesia had gotten a 2% interest rate um, and no CDB, um, no guarantee, uh, government guarantee on the CDB loan uh, from China and Beijing at that point in time in 2015, uh, demanded and you know went back to the negotiating table and demanded to uh, exim in Thailand um, to get the same terms. Um, and so you know countries learn, they learn from each other, they learn from past experiences, um, and and they try and get better terms. Now the issue and the problem here is that you know it's good and you can learn and you can negotiate when you've got someone else at the table. And Asian countries have a really big advantage there because they have Japan. Um, you know, uh, around and they have Japan with uh, almost 
as much financial firepower as China, at least in Southeast Asia, uh, better, actually better conditions and terms, uh, better offering, same kind of financing package and ability to deliver on the project. So very, very similar offering. And so it's much easier for Asian countries to um, make a choice and or uh, make sure that both lenders compete against each other. That's less the case, at least that I've seen of uh, in Africa, because the terms between, you know, IMF, World Bank, um, contracts compared to Chinese contracts are so different um, to, to a certain extent. Uh, and on top of it, you know, in, in, in many situations in Africa, the recipient country doesn't have as much choice or as much alternatives or opportunities to go and see a competitor and see if they can get better better terms with China. So it's, it's all about how much choice you've got, how much alternatives you've got. And in a post-COVID situation, um, it's, it's a key question to know how much other lenders than China will kind of pull out uh, of uh, Africa in terms of lenders, uh, of uh, sorry, in terms of loans, um, and you know how much choice and alternatives um, African leaders are going to have. And so if they don't have a choice, then they might just go back um, to CDB, go back to Exim, uh, and have to accept uh, lending under similar terms or a little bit better terms, um, but still with the same kind of unsustainability and issues that we're having today. Agatha Kratz is an associate director at the Rhodium Group, and she heads up the European practice there. And Matthew Minji is a research analyst at Rhodium's office in New York. Thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was a fascinating discussion. Of course. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. If people want to follow either what you are reading and writing or what Rhodium is doing, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? Agatha, do you uh, do you have a, a Twitter handle that you can share? I do. Um, I am on Twitter, but my um, email is also on the Rhodium website. Uh, so if you look for um, my name and myself on the Rhodium website, you can get in touch very easily. And what's your Twitter name for people to follow? I don't remember. <laughs> ah, okay, don't worry about it. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Matthew, <laughs> am I going to put you on the spot as well, Matthew, about your own Twitter handle? No, I do remember my own Twitter handle. Uh, it is at Matt Minji. Um, although you'll note that uh, I'm mostly a lurker. I don't post a whole lot. Um, the best place to find Agatha and I's research or what Rhodium's doing on China is the uh, Rhodium Group website. That's rhd.com. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and we're looking forward to your new research. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Kobus, this is all speculation. So let me kind of preface what I'm about to say is that I have no idea what's going to happen. Nobody has any idea what's going to happen. But based on what we heard from Agatha and Matthew, I want to kind of lay out a scenario just so that we can all start to think about some of the different options here. Now, we didn't talk about the fact that next year, is FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. This is the triennial summit. Uh, every three years it gets together, and it's supposed to be in Dakar. I don't think there is any chance on God's green earth that Xi Jinping is going to leave his hermetically sealed bubble <laughs> and travel to Senegal next year. That that will not happen in my view. I mean, there's just no way, because this thing is probably still going to be going on next year or will be in the residual of it. So, But let's think about FOCAC. Okay. The idea is that I think they're going to be able to provide some form of relief in the next 12 to 18 months to get us to FOCAC. And then FOCAC normally is the big unveiling of a giant check. It's been $60 billion for the past two year, two FOCACs. Uh, prior to that, it was $20 billion. I think the new FOCAC will bring about austerity. And instead of talking about how much money China is going to give Africa, 
it's going to be that's where the big debt relief announcement will probably come in so that Xi Jinping can look magnanimous, the politics, the optics of this. Uh, also, remember from the last FOCAC, there was a lot of sensitivity about China giving away money back home in China. It became rather contentious. And just like it is in Europe and the United States, foreign aid, foreign loans, even though the fact that the Chinese are actually making money on a lot of these concessional loans is not politically very popular. So I, I, this is my speculation, not sure if it's grounded in any reality, but that this debt relief program will be a year-long agenda for the Chinese. There's a short-term, get them out of the immediate fix, and a longer-term, which will be announced and negotiated uh, at FOCAC. What's your take on that? That makes a lot of sense to me. Like, you know, it, it, it makes, it sounds very, you know, very realistic to think that that at least some of the lending that's usually announced at FOCAC will be, in this case, will be in the form of some form of, of debt relief. Um, and, you know, that, that will essentially make everyone look good. Um, what I wanted to get your take on is, uh, you know... <laughs> Frequently, when people discuss discuss African lending, it's frequently couched in this strangely kind of moralistic terms. You know, um, what you've actually heard a lot from uh, from U.S. government officials sometimes. Um, of like, oh, these essentially these kind of like profligate or greedy kind of African governments keeping on lending irresponsibly, as if Africa don't have, you know, African countries don't have very solid reasons to want to lend more money. Um, and so, what do you, how do you think it's going to change the calculus of, of for African governments? Um, you know, because one one of the points that people frequently make in African development studies is that. Because Africa, so many African governments tend to get such a big chunk of their budget out of resources, it it means that uh, they put a lot less uh, energy into into lo local taxation, into, into gathering money domestically. Um, you know, and that and that then also weakens the kind of the the hold that the population has on the state. You know, if you're not paying taxes, then it's harder to make the state do what you want. Um, do you see that kind of calculus changing? That there's that there's going to be a, a, like a harder drilling down in Africa on trying to generate other forms of revenue and trying to and move away from this kind of commodity and lending kind of situation that they're stuck in at the moment. Or is it simply going to be a, a fight? You know, kind of race to the bottom where they where they accept worse and worse and worse terms just to take on better debt. I think the premise of your question, the way I hear it, is predicated on an idea that it's going to be a continuation of BC. There's We're now in a world of BC and AC, so before corona and after corona. And I think the world that's going to exist after corona, the considerations, the way that you're laying them out, will not exist uh, and again, I don't mean to be defeatist in any way, but I have a feeling that Corona is going to cause enormous amounts of instability. There are reports coming out already, and the French Foreign Ministry had a, a cable or some kind of report that was publicly released. And even some of the African analysis that I've been seeing is that uh, not all the governments and all the leaders are going to survive COVID-19. And, and in that context of chaos, of political instability, of governments falling potentially, uh, the lending environment becomes very, very different. And so when an African government has to make a choice between repaying a euro bond holder or a Chinese creditor or providing food or, or you know food for a military or social services or PPE for their people, the choice is going to be quite clear. So the canary in the contemporary cold mine today is Lebanon. 
Lebanon walked away from its Eurobond debt a couple weeks ago. And we're going to see a world of hurt come down on them from the likes of Moody's and Fitch, the credit ratings agencies. But Argentina did the same thing, you know, a generation ago, and it's still here. It's been painful. But I suspect that we're not going to see one or two, but maybe five or 10 African governments be confronted with these difficult choices of, do I provide food for military, social services for my people, or pay back a euro bond holder? And in that case, I think the euro bond holder is going to lose. And so the price of borrowing money is going to go up exponentially for African governments. And the equation for them to borrow money is going to be based in part upon the political stability and social stability that's going on in their countries, because that will set the priorities for them. Because if there's instability, they're going to invest in their militaries and they're going to invest in security. If there is some type of normalcy or just basic poverty, and I don't mean to diminish basic poverty, then they might then say, okay, we will have to take grants and we'll have to find other financing in order to lift people out of poverty, similar to what Ethiopia went through, say, in the 1980s. Uh, but let's not discount the idea of conflict, you know, international conflict in Africa. These things tend to create these disruptions, a lot of tension. And so, and I'm just putting those out there as geopolitical variables. Please do not think that I am necessarily prescribing this for Africa, but I think it's got to be on the table of consideration when we think about debt as it relates to an African government's policy priorities. Well, I mean, the the reason I, I asked is is because some of the some of the kind of structural reasons for African lending are not going to go away, right? Just no, no, no matter how much how much kind of disruption COVID causes, there's still always going to be a, a lot of very young people um, needing development, and, and Africa is still going to be lacking infrastructure after this, right? To, to, to kind of big reasons for lending um, so so in that sense you know if, if one looks in a kind of a longer term say beyond 10 years some some of the reasons why they're lending are still going to be around um, and so the very issue of African development will either you know like you, you know African governments will a have to make some kind of decision about what their their kind of development agenda is going to be no matter no matter kind of what the domestic situation is unless there's full-blown civil war um, but, uh, you know, it's also, um, it might then lead to having a rethink, like an Africa-centered rethink of what development actually means, um, you know, which, which then, you know, raises a lot of other questions. So one of my favorite economists is a gentleman by the, day, the name of David Ndee in, uh, in Kenya. And boy, is he provocative. Uh, I, I think I'm saying his name correct, David N-D-I-I, N-D I think is the way it said, or N-D-I. Anyway, look him up. He's on Twitter. He's amazing. And he, he did an interview with the political, the online political journal or magazine, uh, The Elephant, a couple weeks ago. And in this interview, he talked about how he is hoping that COVID-ID will bring about the end of infrastructure-led development. He has been a, an effusive critic of the standard gauge railway in Kenya. He does not believe that a government spending six to $10 billion to build railways and ports and hospitals is the right way to go. What he suggests is that it should be building human capital. So education, healthcare, these are the things. And then once you get people who are healthier and smarter, uh, then they can be able to generate more economic activity and that will then pay for the infrastructure without having to go into debt. That is a very crude summary of his argument. But what I think is so interesting is the fact that he is really believes that COVID-19 is going to bring an end to this. And I think the days of 
you know, $6 billion infrastructure deals, uh, those are probably going to go away. Uh, so I recommend taking a look at, at David and Dee as well. Let me ask you a very quick question because um, it was interesting. One of the points, and I didn't have a chance to raise it with Agatha and Matthew, was about the New Development Bank. So Agatha brought up the point that said just at the same time when China's talking about debt relief, they come back in with new loans. And one of the things that we heard last week or this week, I forget, so much is happening so fast, is that the BRICS Bank, also known as the New Development Bank in Shanghai, uh, extended a an offer or floated an idea. I don't know if it's a formal position. Leslie Masdorp is the vice president of the New Development Bank. He's from South Africa. He did an interview with the Daily Maverick newspaper. And in that interview, uh, it came out that a billion-dollar credit line is available to South Africa to help get through COVID ID. And then there's another billion dollars waiting on the back end to help South Africa rejuvenate their economy post COVID. And I was like, wow, that's that's incredible. So there's $2 billion of new loans coming just as we're talking about wiping away debt. And it was loans. These, these was not a grant. It was loans. Uh, what What did you take away from that? You know, as a South African, I'm a little relieved that that is a possibility. <laughs> um, but I, I, it also makes me worried in the longer term of, uh, you know, what that will do to South Africa's, you know, kind of debt mix um, and what, what the kind of impact will be on, on, on longer term development. Um, I, you know, I think I think for in a lot of cases, the, the kind of um, calculus that's going on is this idea of, of, you know, needing to put out the fire in the short term and then dealing with, you know, with the the paying the fire department afterwards, um, which you know kind of might be short sighted, but it might also just simply be be realistic. Um, you know, yeah, you know, so 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 you know, I don't have a much more kind of sophisticated take on on it than that. Um, I was also wondering whether this, you know, it. I, I found it very interesting that this is specifically for South Africa, and I assume it has to be because South Africa is a BRICS member. Uh, what was your take on that? Yeah, it is for it be because South Africa is a BRICS member. And the new development bank is intended for BRICS com- countries, presumably. Uh, here's my reading of it. Uh, I think the Chinese have been biding their time with their new policy banks, the, the development bank, as well as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And it's interesting because in all the discussions of debt relief about fr- with the World Bank and the IMF, China is a major player at both institutions. Yet we never hear any discussion of Chinese engagement in those institutions or their voice being projected to drive the agenda in those two institutions. There is still the legacy of an American, David Malpass, running the World Bank and then a European being handed over to a European. And it feels like those cultures are still very, very rigid in those institutions. And so the Chinese don't feel that that's a place that they can push. Now this crisis, I think, is going to overwhelm a lot of the multilateral institutions. The United States has worked very hard over the past, certainly the past three years, but even longer, to undermine a lot of these multilateral institutions, to weaken them, to undermine the credibility of the United Nations, to break apart the the World Trade Organizations. Now we don't we haven't had a WTO deal in a long time. Trump really wants to do bilateral deals more and more. So multilateralism is not a fashionable word in the United States. This presents a fantastic opportunity for China's new multi, multilateral lending institutions, the AIB, which has a lot of few, a lot, quite a few European countries in it now, including Great Britain and also the New Development Bank to really start elevating their profile. So I think in some ways, the fact that they were extending these loans so early on in the process, 
to South Africa was telegraphing a, a new confidence that these banks may have. I, I mean, again, it's all speculation. We don't know. We're so early on in, in this process there. Uh, final thoughts to you on the debt issue. Well, you know, the, I think I think it's one of the conversations that we need to have and, and we probably will have um, over the next few weeks is is in in the context of how of how debt is changing um we probably also need to have a conversation conversation about how trade is going to change because obviously one of the big one of the big issues for for african um governments is the shutdown of of commodity supply chains and the impact that that's having on their local economies so the question is as you know as China slowly gets back online. Um, I mean, everyone is talking about China slowly getting back online. You know, in, in reality, what that will look like, how long it will take for factories to actually start running, um, and how long it will take for, for some of these commodity supply chains to, to get back to life, all of those are up in the air. And I, th- I think a lo- uh, you can't really have a conversation about debt without having a conversation about trade, especially because so much of, Afri- of African debt is resource-backed. Um, so I think... He- this is the big question mark that that I would like to know more about in you know the next few weeks is is whether there's any any realistic way of thinking that that trade is going to just simply snap back to its pre-covid you know mode um, or whether we're talking about new kinds of trade um, and if if new kinds of trade is on the table then then you know it, you have to talk about something like the African continental free trade agreement in in different terms um, and so I think it, it'll be very interesting to kind of to put debt into that frame so these issues are being hashed out right now and you can sense it even in our conversation today nobody knows. But we're putting these ideas out there, and and I'm going to say it again. I say it at the end of every single show. This is exactly the kind of things that we put into our newsletter. And our newsletter, it starts with an idea. So the top of it, Cobus does it once a week. I do it four times a week. And we put an idea out there. And just to have to get people thinking and talking about it. And we're so thrilled that we have so many diplomats, journalists, policymakers, think tank scholars, academics who are now... Uh, subscribing to the newsletter and bouncing around these ideas, we don't pretend to have all the answers in these ideas. Then what we do is, in the bottom part of the newsletter, what we're doing is bringing you just the raw information. So today, it was giving you, for example, you know, our subscribers were getting, you know, Jolly Jens, here's the quote, here's what he's getting, and they're getting it first, and they're getting it filtered. And one of the things that we're seeing as a consequence of COVID ID, uh, COVID-19 is the fact that Fake news, bad news, misinformation, rumors, all of that is going up. It is getting much more difficult to stay on top of what's going on. Cobus and I are spending seven to 10 hours a day putting this thing through, namely me. Cobus has a day job at Saya. But we do want to make sure that you are aware of this fantastic newsletter, something that I'm very proud of, of what we're doing. And uh, we offer half off for students and faculty. And if you would like to try it out, it's free for two weeks. You can cancel at any time, but I can't recommend it enough, uh, especially in this day and age when things are changing so fast. So a weekly newsletter is no longer really enough. The Daily is fantastic for people who really study this stuff and want to figure it out in real time. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Copas and I are back every single week with more shows. That means we will be back again next week with another edition of the program. Until then, for Copas van Staten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project 
to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.